Hello. This is episode two of the podcast called Blood and Rain. I'm your host, Arthur Dan. I believe that the definition of definition is reinvention. To not be like your parents, to not be like your friends, to be yourself. Completely. When I was young, I had no sense of myself. All I was was a product of all the fear and humiliation I suffered. Fear of my parents. The humiliation of teachers calling me garbage can and telling me I'd be mowing lawns for a living. And the very real terror of my fellow students. I was threatened and beaten up for the color of my skin and my size. I was skinny and clumsy. And when others would tease me, I didn't run home crying wondering why. I knew all too well. I was there to be antagonized. In sports, I was laughed at, a spaz. I was pretty good at boxing, but only because the rage that filled me every waking moment made me wild and unpredictable. I fought with some strange fury. The other boys thought I was crazy. I hated myself all the time. As stupid as it seems now, I wanted to talk like them, dress like them, carry myself with the ease of knowing that I wasn't going to get pounded in the hallway between classes. Years passed, and I learned to keep it all inside. I only talked to a few boys in my grade, other losers. Some of them are, to this day, the greatest people I have ever known. Hang out with a guy who had his head flushed down a toilet a few times, treat him with respect, and you'll find a faithful friend forever. But even with friends, school sucked. Teachers gave me a hard time. I didn't think much of them, either. Then came Mr. Peppermint, my advisor. He was a powerfully built Vietnam veteran, and he was scary. No one ever talked out of turn in his class. Once one kid did, and Mr. P lifted him off the ground and pinned him to the blackboard. Mr. P could see that I was in bad shape. And one Friday in October, he asked me if I had ever worked out with weights. I told him no. He told me that I was going to take some of the money that I had saved and buy a 100-pound weight set at Sears. As I left his office, I started to think of things I would say to him on Monday when he asked about the weights that I was not going to buy. Still, it made me feel special. My father never really got that close to caring. On Saturday, I bought the weights, but I couldn't even drag them into my mom's car. An attendant laughed at me as I put them on a dolly. Monday came and I was called into Mr. P's office after school. He said that he was going to show me how to work out. He was going to put me on a program and start hitting me in the solar plexus in the hallway when I wasn't looking. When I could take the punch, we would know that we were getting somewhere. At no time was I to look at myself in the mirror or tell anyone at school what I was doing. In the gym, he showed me 10 basic exercises. I paid more attention than I ever did in any of my classes. I didn't want to blow it. I went home that night and started right in. 
Weeks passed, and every once in a while, Mr. P would give me a shot and drop me in the hallway, sending my books flying. The other students didn't know what to think. More weeks passed, and I was steadily adding new weights to the bar. I could sense the power inside my body growing. I could feel it. Right before Christmas break, I was walking to class, and out of nowhere, Mr. Peppermint appeared and gave me a shot in the chest. I laughed and kept going. He said I could look at myself now. I got home and ran to the bathroom and pulled off my shirt. I saw a body. Not just a shell that housed my stomach and my heart. My biceps bulged. My chest had definition. I felt strong. It was the first time I can remember having a sense of myself. I had done something that no one could ever take away. You couldn't say shit to me. It took me years to fully appreciate the value of the lessons I had learned from the iron. I used to think that it was my adversary, that I was trying to lift that which does not want to be lifted. I was wrong. When the iron doesn't want to come off the mat, it's the kindest thing it can do for you. If it flew up and went through the ceiling, it wouldn't teach you anything. That's the way the iron talks to you. It tells you that the material you work with is that which you will come to resemble. That which you work against will always work against you. It wasn't until my late 20s that I learned that by working out I had given myself a great gift. I learned that nothing good comes without work and a certain amount of pain. When I finish a set that leaves me shaking, I know more about myself. When something gets bad, I know it can't be as bad as that workout. I used to fight the pain, but recently this became clear to me. Pain is not my enemy. It is my call to greatness. But when dealing with the iron, one must be careful to interpret the pain correctly. Most injuries involving the iron come from ego. I once spent a few weeks lifting weight that my body wasn't ready for and spent a few months not picking up anything heavier than a fork. Try to lift what you're not prepared to and the iron will teach you a little lesson in restraint and self-control. I have never met a truly strong person who didn't have self-respect. I think a lot of inwardly and outwardly directed contempt passes itself off as self-respect. The idea of raising yourself by stepping on someone's shoulders instead of doing it yourself. When I see guys working out for cosmetic reasons, I see vanity exposing them in the worst way. As cartoon characters, billboards for imbalance and insecurity. Strength reveals itself through character. It is the difference between bouncers who got off strong-arming people and Mr. Peppermint. Muscle does not always equal strength. Strength is kindness and sensitivity. Strength is understanding that your power is both physical and emotional. That it comes from the body and the mind and the heart. Yukio Mishima said that he could not entertain the idea of romance if he was not strong. Romance is such a strong and overwhelming passion, a weakened body cannot sustain it for long. 
I have some of my most romantic thoughts when I am with the iron. Once I was in love with a woman. I thought about her the most when the pain from a workout was racing through my body. Everything in me wanted her. So much so that the sex is only a fraction of my total desire. It was the single most intense love I have ever felt, but she lived far away and I didn't see her very often. Working out was a healthy way of dealing with the loneliness. To this day, when I work out, I usually listen to ballads. I prefer to work out alone. It enables me to concentrate on the lessons that the iron has for me. Learning about what you're made of is always time well spent, and I have found no better teacher. The iron has taught me how to live. Life is capable of driving you out of your mind. The way it all comes down these days, it's some kind of miracle if you're not insane. People have become separated from their bodies. They are no longer whole. I see them move from their offices to their cars and onto their suburban homes. They stress out constantly, they lose sleep, they eat badly. And they behave badly. Their egos run wild. They become motivated by that which will eventually give them a massive stroke. They need the iron mind. Through the years, I have combined meditation, action, and the iron into a single strength. I believe that when the body is strong, the mind thinks strong thoughts. Time spent away from the iron makes my mind degenerate. I wallow in a thick depression. My body shuts down my mind. The iron is the single best antidepressant I have ever found. There is no better way to fight weakness than with strength. Once the mind and body have been awakened to their true potential, it's impossible to turn back. The iron never lies to you. You can walk outside and listen to all kinds of talk, get told that you're a god or a total bastard. The iron will always kick you the real deal. The iron is the great reference point, the all-knowing perspective giver. Always there like a beacon in the pitch black. I have found the iron to be my greatest friend. It never freaks out on me, never runs. Friends may come and go, but 200 pounds is always 200 pounds. That is a piece that you will likely find in powerlifting and strongman and maybe even bodybuilding gyms all over the world. It was a piece originally published in 1994 called The Iron and the Soul by a man named Henry Rollins. Henry Rollins 
is someone that has had a great influence on my life. It is an example from my life that I have not taken lightly. Now, if you tuned into the podcast last week, the first podcast, you'll have heard a point where I begin to talk about this sort of authenticity. Where I was looking around and the norm around me wasn't reflecting what I thought to be manhood, what I thought to be discipline, what I thought to be strength. And as I mentioned before, in the summer of 2007, when I moved out in a very expensive city, living on my own, working seven days a week and training seven days a week, I was starting to seek out other people, legends of the past, other texts that reflected what it was that I was feeling I needed to embody, what I needed to chase, what I needed to grow into, this essence of blood and rain. One day I was working out in a strength gym that was more of what you would call a boutique strength gym. What I mean by that is it's not your commercial 24-hour fitness. It's not your gold's gym. It's not your alleys, it's not even a CrossFit box. It's a small gym that if you drove too fast, you would miss. But it had every piece of strength equipment imaginable within its very small space. You were given access 24 hours a day. And one night when I got off working from the bar, I went over there. I turned on the computer there that was hooked up to a sound system and it opened up YouTube. And I'd begun listening to Joe Rogan podcasts a bit more regularly and I saw one that came up for a man named Henry Rollins. And I had heard about Henry Rollins before I knew that he was an artist, a musical artist with his own band in the 90s called Rollins Band. And a good friend of mine in high school had attended a spoken word show of his, which I found peculiar. And he came back a new man. I'm able to understand this now, but as a 16-year-old, I sort of just thought he was on a typical teenage hype train. So I clicked on this podcast, and I listened to it all the way through. And for the first time, I started to hear the essence of someone like-minded. Someone that came before me, but not so far in the past that it seemed like this statue on top of a hill, this legend, that there had a barrier of history and a barrier of rhetoric in between myself and its core essence. To know Henry Rollins is to know a man that came not from nothing and not from everything. He was not a man who was downtrodden in his youth. He was not a boy who was horrifically poor and 
experiencing hardship day in and day out, and he wasn't a boy of privilege either. He was somewhere in the middle. He was the embodiment of the American middle class that was surging and growing since the time of Henry Ford and well into the 60s. Now, when Rollins graduated high school, after this love affair began with the iron, he found himself working minimum wage work in his hometown of Washington, D.C. And he had a very strong work ethic. He enjoyed working, he enjoyed the solace of it, and he had done since jobs that he had picked up in high school. But at this point, he was 20 years old and working at a Cold Stone Creamery, and he had the idea in the back of his head that he would go work at his good friend's record store at some point. This was a man who loved music, but still, the job, the prospect of a job of working at a record store wasn't much of an improvement in Cold Stone Creamery. Now, one of the records that Rollins picked up was from a band called Black Flag. Black Flag was a punk band that began in the late 70s. And the original album had its rhythm guitarist be its frontman and vocalist. Now, one day, Rollins went to a Black Flag concert when they came into Washington, D.C. And on a whim... The band said, does anyone want to sing one of our songs? Does anyone want to sing one of our songs? And without hesitation, Rollins jumped on stage and did just that. He described it as the time of his life. With the droning, monotonous work that he went through every single day, he had this beautiful surge of color. The surge of art and excitement. Even if it was just for three minutes, or perhaps even less, he was the lead singer of his favorite band. And for a time, that was enough for him. One day, Rollins received a phone call. It was from the band Black Flag. They said to him, Henry, our rhythm guitarist and lead singer wants to stick just to rhythm guitar. And we're looking for a new front man, and, you know, you're a crazy guy. You jumped on the stage, sang that song down in Washington, D.C. Why don't you come into New York City and audition to be our permanent front man? Now, Rollins went over to his boss at Cold Stone Creamery and explained, this is my shot. And his manager said, go. This is your shot. Go. And he went up to New York and he auditioned. He went through a set. And the band told him, we're going to have a band meeting. Give us a sec. And then they came back. And they said, okay, you're in the band. Here's the touring list. Here's the set list. Uh, we leave in two days. And Roland said, well, what, what, what do I do? They said, well, go tell your job you're quitting. And come back here. And you're going to go on tour with us. And he said, okay. He's 20 years old. He has the opportunity of a lifetime to tour with a band 
consisting of men five, six years older than him. And the difference between a 20-year-old and a 25-year-old, 26-year-old at the time was a very, very, very wide ocean. Rollins idolized these men, and he was going to be one of them. The prospect of punk rock at this time was not a prospect of financial gain or eventual financial security. It was only the music. CBGB's, the famed punk rock club in New York City, had not seen the Ramones rise to prominence yet at this point. There was no money in punk rock. This is independent music. You're taking turns driving the tour bus. You're eating food most would not dare touch. But you're getting to do it. You're getting to make the music. And this prospect was somewhat scary to Rollins, but he said, okay. The tours eventually took Rollins out to Los Angeles. And one of these tours with Black Flag, he wrote his first book. A book called Get in the Van, an account of one of the many tours he had with Black Flag. And while Rollins is a very talented individual, he is also a very humble individual, which I found exceptionally refreshing. He said he looked around and he saw other punk rock musicians who he believed to be far more talented than him. And he saw them outside of tours, performing jobs like waiting tables and working in factories and working at grocery stores. And he said to himself, man, if that guy can't make it just on the music alone, I better have plan A, B, C, D, E, F, and G lined up because I'm starving. I love this, but the fact of the matter is I'm starving. So Rollins started his own publishing company and began writing his own books. One day on tour, he got an offer from a local comedy club to do a 10-minute window of him speaking, whether it be stand-up or giving an account of something that he had been through. He was going to get $10 for 10 minutes, and to him, that was a fortune. So Rollins took the opportunity. He didn't do a stand-up comedy routine. He just told one of the very outlandish stories that he experienced while on tour with a black flag. And when he finished, several fans came up to him, and he said, when's the next time you're uh, you're going to be up? Oh, well, Black Flag's next uh, concert is actually a couple hundred miles. No, 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 no. When's the next time you're going to do that? And he said, oh, that, that, was a, that was a one-time thing. You know, I got ten bucks. I'm going to go buy some food. And they said, well, you know, if you ever do this again, if you're ever in town, let us know. We'd love to come see you. And that was a catalyst for Rollins beginning his talking shows. doesn't really like calling it spoken word, because quote-unquote, that is a road to financial ruin. But he would get up, and he would tell stories of what he had been through. And while Rollins is known as 
this crazed, enraged frontman of one of the most storied punk bands of all time. It was as if that was just an outlet for this rage he spoke of when he was a teenager in high school. But he said the talking shows, that felt like him. That felt authentically himself. And over time, he was given the opportunities of acting in films, voice acting. And eventually, Rollins put together this plan A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. Plan A was Black Flag. Black Flag made no money. He didn't want to be a waiter. He wasn't knocking being a waiter, but he already had done the minimum wage work. And that was something he did not want to return to. And he jokes to this day, no matter how successful I get, I do believe I will be returning to minimum wage work. So why come on this podcast and talk about a punk rock singer with a bunch of other talents? What? If you look at the Blood and Rain podcast description, and you look at the Blood and Rain Instagram description, the caption is art for overcoming. Now, as I discussed in the podcast last week, I was seeking this essence that had manifested, this essence I realized was the most authentic expression of myself. This essence of blood and rain. This essence of getting through the darkest storms, the darkest nights, welcoming them with a smile on my face. As I'm going through hardship, as I'm screaming in agony, in order to earn the dawn, to earn the sunrise, to earn the clouds parting, to earn the sun rays. And Henry Rollins is not only a modern day renaissance man, but he is an embodiment of that. He had an opportunity that was very uncertain. It was a wonderful opportunity in his eyes, but it was still an uncertain one. There was no guaranteed future there. And he jumped at it anyway. And he got a taste of living life on his terms. He got a taste of not surrendering to this matrix of droning minimum wage work. He got a taste of doing it his way. He got a taste of creating his art and overcoming the daily struggles of independent music in the late 70s and early 80s. Minimal food, hoping you don't crash the tour bus because you can't afford a driver. You're taking turns driving and you're hoping to God that your bandmate who just took the wheel didn't have too many beers too short a time ago. He was overcoming this daily struggle. Now, if you are familiar with any form of punk rock, you're going to see a frontman crazed. You're going to see a frontman giving it his all. You're going to see raw pace. You're going to see raw energy. You're going to see the stimulus 
of stress and of work ethic and of expression similar to that of a fighter. And he wasn't going to say no to that. He wasn't going to diminish that with that droning matrix minimum wage work. So begin to not only overcome the daily struggle of his art with Black Flag, but he began to overcome his daily struggle with other forms of art, with writing, with talking shows, eventually acting and voice acting. And it came to a point in the 1990s where punk rock had, at this point, risen to prominence. Black Flag had broken up. But the world had seen the rise of the Ramones. They had seen the rise of the Clash. Punk rock was a little less punk rock and a little more mainstream, for better or for worse. Now, it was better for a financial gain. And Henry Rollins started his second band, Rollins Band. And it reached commercial success through the 1990s. And at this point, he had at least a dozen books published. He was regularly scheduling talking shows. He was regularly scheduling stand-up comedy shows. He had overcome for the sake of his art. And his art had helped him overcome. That authenticity, that throwing oneself in the deep end, that notion of, I'm either going to swim or I'm going to drown. That is a path to unshakable will, and that is a path to illustrious work ethic. While on tour, Henry Rollins would balance giving his all to every single song. Like every song were the last words of his life. It was the last chance to express himself, to show the world who he was. But that discipline of the iron never abandoned him. In today's day and age of Instagram fitness and millennials being attached to their devices and their excuses of, oh, the reason I can't get strong is because I just don't have the time, or I can't gain muscle because I'm an ectomorph, Rollins was uncompromising. You would see him do the full splits with a physique that many would marvel, while performing the most intense music that many had ever seen. This was a punk rock work ethic. This was a work ethic that I truly resonated with. I resonated with it on a very deep, visceral level. I saw that and I said, that's myself. That is what I'm going through right now. I'm working 60 hours a week. I'm training 40 hours a week. 
I'm not getting eight hours of sleep. I'm getting the six that time allows. And I am not taking the out. Henry Rollins is the balance between humility and tenacity. Now, I have mentioned to friends of mine in the past that it is wise not to have too many heroes in the sense that you're going to look up to heroes and at some point they are going to let you down. There shouldn't be this emotional connection. There shouldn't be this belief system connected to other people who at the end of the day are just human and are prone to mistakes no matter how strong of will they are. However, it would be unwise to not look at men of strong work ethic of a strong muscle of self-starting, of a strong muscle of understanding oneself every single day, every nuance. It would be unwise to see men with these qualities and not learn from them. It would be unwise to see these positives, these attributes that contribute towards growth and fulfillment and ignore them. And Henry Rollins is a wealth of these. He's hyper-disciplined. He took every opportunity thrown at him. His first opportunity to be a voice actor came in the form of, Henry, have you ever tried voice acting? And he said, no, but you know what? I, I, I got a voice. You guys asked me to do a voiceover. You can put my voice over rice, over noodles. I don't care. I'm starving and I want to get off of this top ramen diet. He never said no to an opportunity. He adapted and he adjusted. This is to live just on the edge of yourself. This isn't to sit in a comfort zone and say, what Rollins could have said would be, oh no, I'm the music guy. Oh, I'm the talking tour guy. Oh, I, I have my books that I publish, and you know, that's enough of a side hustle to continue performing at Black Flag. No. You continue to explore different aspects of himself and essentially profit off of them to continue to live a life deeply fulfilling and authentic to him. Since retiring from music in 2003, Rollins' work ethic only increased tenfold. With his publishing company, he is described as a job that is well over 60 hours a week. He continues to write his books. He continues to write articles for other magazines, including LA Weekly and including Rolling Stone Australia. He's working seven days a week, and he's usually putting quote-unquote eight to ten hour double shifts seven days a week. When he was asked to describe his relationships at this age, well into his 50s, he said, I, I, I just can't hack it. 
I, I've never been able to properly answer the call of a significant other expecting me to be somewhere and me actually having to be there. For better or for worse, the work has always interested me more. And to me, someone in 2017, who at the time was planning on being single for the rest of his life, to someone who had recently discovered the Orthodox Church, had recently discovered something called green martyrdom, martyrdom through labor, who had taken the plunge to chase becoming a professional fighter to chase becoming an all-time great in fighting and in writing. This was a breath of fresh air. He was living like a monk with a punk rock intensity. He was the punk rock monk, hyper-disciplined, obsessed with details, obsessed with output, obsessed with not leaving this earth leaving stones unturned in his 50s he is constantly improving while he's abandoned the weights due to some issues with joints he has described his regimen of long-distance cardiovascular endurance and calisthenics as something that continues to center himself. Before talking shows, he runs up to 10 miles on a treadmill to empty his mind. To empty his mind of everything except the talking show. Only the talking show is there. Only the stand-up comedy show is there. He does this through continual physical discipline, fanatic physical discipline, well into his 50s. He continues to read, he continues to educate himself. He has regimens for creation. He'll put on records, and at the end of records, he'll do a set of push-ups or a set of bodyweight squats or a set of pull-ups as a break from what other work he was writing and then he'll go back to it he'll put another record on and for the duration of that new record he'll write and at the end of it it's time to get in more calisthenics he can make every excuse in the world that because of his 8 to 10 hour shifts of creating his own original content he doesn't have the time he doesn't have the body of a young man. No. He has this restless soul. He sleeps five to six hours a night. That is a sign of what's called the dolphin chronotype. Very uncommon chronotype. Chronotype being the natural hardwiring sleep patterns of a human being, the dolphin being the restless type, getting five to six hours of sleep and surviving on just that. And that chronotype goes hand in hand 
with what he feels every single morning. You better get up. Oh, you better get up because that Grim Reaper's scythe is tapping on your spine. You better go out in the road. You better go travel. You better go see every inch of the earth. You better go travel to Africa, Asia, remote parts of South America. You better put a backpack on. Pay the taxi driver to drive 10 minutes that way or $10 that way or 10 pounds, 10 euros, 10 rubles that way. And get to know people authentically and write about it. You better get up. The Grim Reaper is tapping that spine with his scythe. Because as he says, you don't have downtime. You don't have spare time. All you have is time. Go. There are many attributes to Henry Rollins that have resonated with me and resonate with me to this day. Work ethic, creativity, so on and so forth. Everything I just mentioned. They're admirable attributes. However, if they come in the form of a man that doesn't exactly resonate with you, I would recommend that you find people from the 20th century, people who are alive to this day in the 21st century, that capture a core essence, capture the core essence of yourself. To observe. Observe them, analyze them. Break down what their positive attributes are break down what attributes of those contribute to that core essence that is the same essence of yourself. This is actionable advice. You may not be a musician. You may not be a fighter. You may not be a writer. But every fighter has an influence, every musician has an influence, every writer has an influence. I would suggest honing in on the core essence of yourself, finding those before you who have worked with this core essence. Absorb and consume and manifest and forge into a discipline their positive attributes. And with this engine, manifest the highest, strongest, and greatest version of yourself. The highest, strongest, and greatest version 
of your core essence for the world to see. I can't wait to see it. And you should be chopping at the bit as well. Now, in the past week, I've gotten a number of questions for a Q&A for episode two, today's podcast. So we're going to dive right into it. Question number one comes from the United States. How do you balance between mental toughness and injury prevention slash overtraining? Now, this is a question that I get quite a bit from people that I have trained in the past and people I'm training now. Mental toughness should be a 24-7 attribute to strive for. That should be something that you wear on your body in everything that you do. But the counterbalance to mental toughness is truth. It's the truth of seeing clearly what is before you, what is surrounding you, what the situation is around you. For example, you're not going to be mentally tough to the point where you're walking around with this sort of intense vibrato bravado rather not vibrato for those of you experienced vocalists you're not walking around with that intense bravado that will sort of alienate people in a situation that is a bit more formal or a bit bit more delicate you're going to look around and you're going to adjust accordingly you're going to reel it in The mental toughness is always going to be internal, but you don't necessarily have to wear it on your sleeve loudly and brightly. The same can be said for your workouts. Now, after reading The Iron and the Soul by Henry Rollins, there's that excerpt where he says, The iron will teach you self-restraint. So you want to be as mentally tough in your training within reason. Now, for modalities of training such as strength, where you need to take five plus minutes in between sets and you're doing very low reps, there is a time and a place for mental toughness. The endocrine system can take about two weeks of heavy lifting out of a month. So... I would suggest applying mental toughness to strength only two weeks out of the month to prevent overtraining and injury within the realm of strength. Now, when it comes to hypertrophy, when it comes to cranking out sets of 8 to 15 reps for the sake of squeezing the sarcoplasm for 
the most hypertrophy it can carry out and achieve. There's certainly a place for mental toughness there. Now choose weights that aren't going to injure yourself within the realm of hypertrophy. When it comes to endurance, there's two types of endurance. There's the aerobic endurance, where you're relying solely on the aerobic system. And an example of what proper endurance training would look like for the aerobic system and the aerobic system alone, it would be what's called talking test cardio. I'm not running so slow that I might as well be walking and I can carry out a conversation very clearly as if I was sitting at a coffee shop conversing with my best friend. However, I'm not going to run so fast or jump rope so fast that I can hardly breathe and that there is no shot in hell that I can have a conversation with someone. It's that in-between balance where I can... So, yeah, the other day I am... Um, I, uh, I went to the grocery store, and it's, it's, it's the middle ground. So when it comes to aerobic endurance, you're not going to shove all this mental toughness to the point where you can hardly breathe, because then you're dipping into the anaerobic system. Now, if you're dealing with anaerobic endurance, you're going to push the pace. That's where your high-intensity interval training lives, your cardiac intervals, your lactic training, your sprinting. These modalities of training are typically unharmed by excessive, unbridled mental toughness. So when it comes to those modalities of training, I would go all out. But there are different levels of mental toughness to apply to your training. You're not going to go through a hypertrophy workout or a strength workout and attempt to lift weight that could potentially injure you in the name of mental toughness. At that point, it stops becoming mental toughness and it starts becoming stupidity. I have experienced this many a time. I have risked injury in the past. I have straddled the border of mental toughness and stupidity, and I have jumped face-first in the realm of stupidity in the name of quote-unquote mental toughness. So to sum up, with strength, two weeks out of the four, but still conservative in the sense that you're not picking weights that are too big of a jump. You're picking sustainable jumps that are typically planned in effective programming over weeks, months, and potentially years, depending on your level of dedication to training. For hypertrophy, mental toughness is imperative, but within the parameters that you choose weights that aren't going to injure you doing, doing sets of reps higher than five. For aerobic endurance, the mental toughness is gonna to come more in the form of being steady. Maintaining this pace, not slowing down because you're feeling tired or you're becoming mentally weak with the droning monotony of steady state aerobic cardiovascular endurance. And you're also not going to push the pace to the point where 
you have left the realm of aerobic endurance and you are into anaerobic endurance. The mental toughness comes in the form of staying steady for a long period of time and staying true. And for anaerobic endurance, giving your all. That is the purest form of mental toughness in exercise. So choose your modality and apply the necessary and proper level of mental toughness towards each exercise. And you'll prevent injury and you'll prevent overtraining. The only other aspect I can think of in terms of overtraining is bad programming, where it's a higher frequency of high weights more than the endocrine system can handle. But that's more of a sense of grand strategy. So seek programming from experienced professionals, not from Instagram influencers. Godspeed. The second question also comes from the United States, and it's asking my favorite period of history and why. Domestically, in the United States, my favorite period of history would actually have to be the time of westward expansion, for better or for worse. That starts with Lewis and Clark in 1804 with their expedition to the Pacific Coast. To the following frontiersmen who explored this vast, unexplored swath of land from the Louisiana Purchase to what was then both Spanish and eventually Mexican territory. This untouched wilderness that was only known by the natives of this country. To Texan independence and the Battle of the Alamo, to the Mexican-American War and the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. The Mexican-American War in particular within that realm has to be my favorite war to study, mainly from the fact that that was how the West was won. James Knox Polk, our 11th president's platform was very simple. As president, I would like to secure California and I'd like to secure the Oregon Territory from the British. If I can achieve this within one term, I will not run for a second. At the time, Texas, at the point of 1846, at the beginning of the Mexican-American War, Texas had been its own independent country for quite some time. Since, I believe, 1838, so eight plus years. And Polk ordered the U.S. military, the United States Army, to cross the border into Mexican territory and to start war with the intention of securing California. Now, this is a gray area, but this is a gray area for a time where if you looked at Europe, there was a war every two weeks practically. Whether it would be for overseas possessions, or it would be for slight skirmishes, or there was the case of Napoleon and expansion across Europe from Spain all the way to Russia, which was his most ill-advised venture. So this is a gray area for America at the time. 
a gray area by today's standards, but they were starting more for the sake of expansion. That was commonplace. Me being a Californian, it's fascinating to me how this state came to be. From Spanish settlement to Mexican occupation to the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo to it becoming a part of the United States to what California is today. It's also important to me to understand the darker parts of American history. To understand that my country is not perfect by any moral standard. The decimation of the native population in the name of railroads, paying for one sin in the civil war that tore this nation apart, by transferring it to another sin. The phrase, North and South can only be healed by joining East and West. These gray areas are fascinating to me. And when it comes to the West in particular, that has to be my favorite period of history. In terms of my favorite, favorite period of history internationally, that would be a toss-up between the time of the Holy Roman Empire and medieval Europe until the Renaissance and World War I. The world has still not recovered from World War I. The Treaty of Versailles was so drastic that it gave a window to someone like Adolf Hitler to seize power and hypnotize a population to grow fanatic. Fanatic to the point of Horrifically racist ideology to the point where Joseph Goebbels, the minister of propaganda, labeled the Slavic people, another race of white-skinned people, a dark wave of filth that has descended from the Ural Mountains upon true Europe. Without the Treaty of Versailles, that those atrocities do not happen. Because Germany is not so downtrodden that someone like Adolf Hitler is seen as a savior and is seen as a guiding light. World War I is the end of empires and the rise of communism. The German Empire smuggled Vladimir Lenin into Russia to begin the Bolshevik Revolution and assassinate a czar that was growing to be a czar of the people in Nicholas. Nicholas had unfortunately paid for the sins of past czars, including Ivan the Terrible, in the name of communism, which became a far, far, far greater foe to the Russian people. And unfortunately, they did not know that at the time. So World War I. World War I is the birth of modernism. World War I is the catalyst of the world we know today. So domestically, westward expansion, and internationally, Medieval Europe and World War One. These are fascinating reads. This next question also comes from the United States. What is your favorite way to build overall strength while maintaining high levels of cardiovascular endurance and mobility? Now yesterday I had posted on Instagram about the Soviet weightlifting system which is 
my primary methodology for strength. The Soviet weightlifting system relies mostly on the central nervous system as opposed to the muscular system to gain strength. This is highly beneficial for people like soldiers, as opposed to athletes, people who are not as pampered. People who are expected to be strong under the highest levels of stress and duress. And it also doesn't require a muscular system to get copious amounts of protein and other macronutrients to function at the highest level. Strength can also be programmed within 48 hours of a endurance workout, a hard endurance workout that involves anaerobic cardiovascular activity. There's a there's a concept called interference when programming something like hypertrophy near a hard endurance workout. You'll see bodybuilders in the morning do, as I said before, an aerobic endurance workout where they're passing the talking test, they're not dipping into the anaerobic system. So when they wake up in the morning, they'll have a period of fasting and they'll do their fasted cardio. And this will help them burn fat without sacrificing the muscle that they're building for the sake of their bodybuilding competition. But if they were to perform a high-intensity interval training workout too close to a hypertrophy workout, there's going to be interference. Some of the hypertrophy is going to be compromised. So if you're looking to build overall strength and potentially putting hypertrophy on the back burner, but not necessarily depending on how you program your week's training, I would highly suggest looking at the post that I posted yesterday about the Soviet weightlifting system and then doing further research on the Soviet weightlifting system. I give you a brief breakdown of how to program the Soviet weightlifting system to build strength while being able to then either perform training sessions of hypertrophy and training sessions of cardiovascular both aerobic and anaerobic endurance. So go take a look. Next question, as well from the United States. How do you get past writer's block? Now this is a hell of a question. Um, I have suffered in the past months at a time of writer's block. Until I sort of hit writer's block from two different opposite and I mean truly opposite angles. There's the angle of sort of grand strategy, where let, let's say I'm writing a book, and I'm actually writing a novel whose rough draft is going to be completed uh, by the end of March. So these are the strategies I use today. I have a rough semblance of an idea of the story. How that story is going to manifest is going to be page by page, line by line, word by word. So I can divide these general story points into chapters. And if I'm experiencing writer's block on a chapter, I can switch gears to another chapter so it won't be as linear. On the complete opposite end, if I want to force the issue... I want to 
crank out the next word from the word I just wrote, the spot where, excuse me, the spot where I am experiencing writer's block. I'll actually stand up from the desk. I'll do a set of 10 burpees, very Rollins-esque. You can begin to see the influence. I'll do a set of 10 burpees, and I'll sort of hone in on this force, this force of muscle. My body's going to do the burpees whether it wants to or not. And my mind is going to crank out the words whether it wants to or not. So to sum up, there's the 10,000 feet grand strategy standpoint. And this doesn't just apply to a novel. If you're writing an essay for school, if you're writing a manual for a white paper, if you're a copywriter, you can start at the end, you can start at the middle, you can start creating the other points of content that are going to make up the final project as a whole, or you can force the issue through involving the body and forcing your being to crank out words, to crank out lines, to crank out paragraphs, and crank out pages. Question number five <laughs> is coming from someone who knows me personally, why are you so beautiful? You know who you are. You're too kind. And you play too much. <laughs> Question number six. On writing tools for development and realistic goals for beginners. Um, in terms of tools for development, in terms of tools for developing writing... Um, this can come in many forms. If you're speaking of literal tools, um, there are plenty of tools out there for outlining. I'm, I'm just going to use once again a book, for example. Um, you can sort of start to outline either in a bulleted list or a numbered list the core elements of what you're trying to write. So there's great outlining software out there. If you have an iPhone or just iCloud in general, you can use the Notes app and it has built-in sort of outlining list, so I would recommend that from a 10,000 feet grand strategy standpoint. When it comes to refining your writing, there's a phenomenal tool online, this, uh, this Hemingway editor, you can just Google, and it'll plug in your writing and it'll help you refine your writing. Hemingway, Ernest Hemingway was known for having the most refined least words possible text in his books. He wanted every word to be potent. He wouldn't use adverbs because in his mind he should have more potent adjectives to describe things. So that's a phenomenal tool for literal tools. I'd also refer back to what I just mentioned on writer's block, those methods. And realistic goals for beginners... My realistic goal for beginners would be to just write. Your goal should be to write. Your goal should be to write like no one's watching. I saw a brief ad for a master class from one of the writers, and I don't recall who exactly it was, but they said, quote-unquote, write like nobody's watching because nobody is. There's no one judging you. Ernest Hemingway also said, Write drunk, edit sober. 
Now, I'm not advocating for the abuse of alcohol because I myself do not drink. However, the sentiment of this, he's in this altered state of consciousness where he's not caring about judgment. He's not caring about being critical. He's cranking out as many words as possible, and in the morning, analytically, he's refining them. Your rough draft doesn't have to be God's gift to earth. Your rough draft just needs to be the rough draft. Enjoy the process. In terms of time goals, in terms of realistic goals, I made the mistake of trying to schedule sessions for this book that I'm writing, where I'm going to crank out as much as possible. And when it came to actually writing, I wasn't focusing on each word that I was cranking out. So I would divide it up into bits. The book I'm writing right now, for example, I have 12 chapters. And this is something that I stole from my experience as an actor, where we divide up each scene from our scripts into bits. To zero in on our actions and sentiments that we're going to portray on stage. Divide each chapter or each section of an essay or section of a memo or whatever piece of content you have. Divide it into small bits that you're going to schedule each day. Today, I'm just going to do one or two bits. Now, that might not seem like much, but I still have quite a bit to write of this rough draft. But the scheduled completion date is March 20th. That's only two months away, so these things add up. But write bravely. Write like no one's watching, because no one is. Best of luck. And I look forward to reading what you write. So next question. I'm not entirely sure what country this stems from. But it's a phenomenal question. I'm starting Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu soon. Any tips on how to best approach it? Now, when it comes to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu specifically, I can't speak on the nuances of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I've only partaken in two training sessions. My experience is primarily and almost completely with striking, uh, Muay Thai, Dutch kickboxing, Western boxing, and a bit of savat. What I can tell you is the disciplines and mindsets that apply to striking also apply to grappling. Now, what's nice about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu gyms typically have a better sense of community. Um, it It also has the belt system, which I actually happen to admire. A lot of Muay Thai fighters sort of rip on it. Um, but it gives you a sense of where you're at. If you choose a gym with a strong reputation. Now, what you've seen with karate in this country is the quote-unquote McDojo problem where you're seeing people who clearly don't deserve a black belt, a black belt meaning a baseline level of skill mastery. You're seeing people who very clearly not achieve that base level, baseline level of skill mastery receive a black belt. Now, I'm hearing rumors that this is starting with some gyms for Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, but as a general rule, it takes a decade at a time to receive a black belt. So, number one, find a reputable gym. Number two, at the ground floor, 
listen to everything your instructor has to say. Ask questions politely. Ask questions respectfully. Respect your training partners. And once again, listen to everything your instructor has to say. Be a dictator with yourself about the basics. Refine the basics every single day for the rest of your life. But when it comes to choosing your lack of, for lack of a better term, style as a martial artist, this is when you begin to start listening more towards your more to yourself. There's different body types and different qualities that are floating around in the realm of martial arts. You'll see, for example, in the striking world, longer men will rely more on their jab and spacing and distance, whereas shorter men will rely on closing the distance. And then you'll also see different personality attributes influence their fighting style. So I'd also recommend on a more long-term standpoint, listen to yourself. And I, I speak a lot about core essence, especially on this episode of the podcast. But with the first episode of the podcast describing core essences, this is something that is going to be applied pretty much to every podcast every week. So getting back to your journey in jiu-jitsu, meditate and listen to yourself. Listen to your conscious, your subconscious, your entire being on what identity is starting to manifest within you as a martial artist. So you're essentially a dictator with the basics. You're a dictator with yourself in terms of listening to your instructor. But as time goes on, as you become a blue belt, a purple belt, a brown belt, a black belt, there's a gradient of listening to yourself more, which submissions, which positions that you're going to choose as your go-throughs. It's no, it's no different for myself choosing which combinations and which sequences and which forms of movements and which paces that I choose to use as a striker. It'd be no different for you in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I would also recommend get in shape. Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is going to get, get you in shape, but I would also supplement with both strength and cardiovascular endurance training sessions that will enhance your experience in Jiu-Jitsu. The better your conditioning, the better you can focus on the technique itself. And if you're looking to truly be a fast-paced learner within the realm of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, do it every day the two people to receive black belts within three years Kyle Terra and BJ Penn had mats in their house and would invite people at any given point of the day and the, tech, the techniques never left their brain and you saw the rate of learning increase tenfold in terms of the basics in terms of the baseline techniques, listen to your instructor. But you're the master of your own destiny. This is a lifelong journey. And best of luck to you. Os.
The last question is a two-part question. How do you deal with slash conquer fear? And how do you deal with the fear of being on the wrong path and dealing with the fear of self-doubt? This is a very important question. I'm going to start with a quote from one of the greatest books ever written, Doom, that fear is the mind killer. Fear makes you cave in on yourself. Now, it's easier said than done to, quote-unquote, not let fear kill the mind. Many other content creators I have mentioned on this podcast are advocates for Stoicism, Greco-Roman Stoicism, i.e. Seneca, Marcus Aurelius, etc. I would read the Stoics and sort of learn the Stoic mindset to be unwavering in the face of things that make you fearful. I would detach yourself from your practice detachment. You are not your thoughts. You are not your fears. If you witness yourself, if you detach from yourself, and you witness yourself being fearful, you're now at a point where fear is not making you emotional, where fear is not causing you to see a warped sense of the world. You're able to look at the aspects and situations analytically that are causing you to be fearful. And if you think that you're alone in fear or you're lesser for being fearful, that you're surrounded by these crazy fearless people, that couldn't be further from the truth. Georges Saint-Pierre's autobiography, The Way of the Fight, his first chapter is titled, I'm Scared. And then he goes into, it doesn't matter that he's scared. It doesn't matter that he's scared because he is doing what he is called to do. He's detaching from himself. He's detaching from that feeling of fear. So detachment is key. Reading the Stoics will only enhance that. Now, the second question, how do you deal with the fear of being on the wrong path and dealing with the fear of self-doubt? That is only going to come from knowing yourself. That is only going to come from meditating every single day and checking in with yourself and checking in with that core essence, with that inner voice. If you check in with yourself, you're going to know whether or not you're on the wrong path. To describe the feeling of self-doubt, however, the fear of self-doubt, that comes in a very fast-paced, all-encompassing, emotional state. That's fear itself making you question whether or not you're on the wrong path. 
Knowing you're on the wrong path is going to be quieter and far more unshakable. It's going to be something that is very difficult to avoid if you're being honest with yourself, if you're checking in with yourself, if you're meditating with yourself, if you're detaching. Knowing yourself and knowing your core essence and how that develops every single day, how that manifests every single day as a daily practice not only will help combat fear, self-doubt, and will help zero in on whether or not you are on the wrong path, it has a host of other benefits. It will help you in creating your art. It will help you in identifying what aspects are holding you back. It will help you identify what is leaving you unfulfilled. It will help you identify what people are leaving you feel drained in your life and you may potentially need to set boundaries with or in some cases cut yourself off from completely. This is a home note. Meditating. Detaching. And listening to and understanding your core essence every single day as a daily practice. This is a form of central control for a number of things. And at the very least, it's a preventative measure for going down the wrong path. Whether that be the wrong path morally or the wrong path for your personal truth. So establish that daily practice. And go forward. And prosper. Thank you all for being here. It's honestly been a pleasure within the past week. Receiving positive feedback from all of you. Who have listened to the first episode of the Blood and Rain podcast. It's been deeply enriching. It's been deeply fulfilling. It's been very exciting. It's been exciting receiving all of your questions. And that has also given life to planning podcasts for the remainder of the quarter. As I mentioned before, I'll be releasing new podcasts every Thursday at 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. The remaining 10 podcasts in the quarter, so until the end of March, have been planned. There are some based on some original content that I'm working on. There are some based on other breakdowns of men with positive and admirable attributes like Henry Rollins. And there's some guests in the work. There's going to be one guest per month for the last week of each month. And I'm very excited for you to hear their voices. I'm very excited 
for you all to hear their feedback on the questions that you're sending in. And I'm very excited for you to hear these different perspectives of these surging content creators, these advocates for virtue and traditional masculinity within the realms of virtue. And I'm very much looking forward to it. So until next week, good night and good storms. Thank you.